Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Guess what? Ooh, um, it's spring. No, that can't be it. I, I don't know. <laughs> I have a vaccination appointment. No. Um, yeah, I do. I do for two weeks from now. So hopefully this one doesn't get canceled. <laughs> wow. I don't expect that it will. I think it's all figured out. And um, so, yeah, in two weeks. Uh, oh, actually, it's a week from now. My bad. In one week, uh, I will be vaccinated. Oh, my God. Do you know which one you're getting? It said on my confirmation that it would either be Pfizer or AstraZeneca. Ooh, mm-hmm. very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So looking forward to that. Guess what else? <laughs> um, I don't I don't even know. Like, you'll be able to go to a party? You're going to a party? Oh, God, no, I'm still going to be inside this house, (laughs) (laughs) socially distancing from the people. Uh, No, friend of the pod, former transcriber, Rebecca Rose, sent me all dress chips. (gasps) No. Yes. (laughs) So I've been super happy this weekend. It was great. It came with a happy (laughs) International Women's Day note attached. So thank you, Rebecca, for that. And it also came with a note that um, that basically says I should forgive you. So I forgive you for not sending me (laughs) chips yet. That's so nice. (laughs) Yes. Man, Rebecca's always getting my back. That's so great. Mm -hmm. I'm so happy to hear that you have those chips because they really are so good. You know, if we keep doing this episodes, we keep doing Sandy and Nora, I'm afraid that we're going to be making this into a full chip podcast, which I think would be great. We might have to have a chip episode where we just try chips on <laughs> for size. And, that would be so awesome. And make, make some comments on how the chip as a communal food actually really does support collective organizing. Oh, yes. But also, it's the worst kind of snack food to have in a pandemic. Oh, yeah. Probably. Everybody touching shit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Huh. Well, anyway, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. Yeah, We're recording this on March 21, and that is the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And there were like almost a thousand people out today in Quebec City. It was sunny. It was springtime. It's a little bit too early for it to be this sunny and warm, but, uh, you know. It was it was how it was, and so it was really really wonderful. And we had um, a, a rare first kind of moments, certainly in the, the the experience I have here, of targeting the police and actually sending a message towards the police. And so that was really uh, a really great evolution of where activists' thinking and organizing is at. So I hope everybody listening had something to do on the weekend that was good and cool. And if it was related to a March 21 action, that is awesome. And this episode is going to talk a little bit about this um, day, although in a very backwards way, in the opposite way, I guess. What do you mean? I mean, we'll be talking about... Backwards way? Yeah, like the opposite of, of like anti-racism day. We're going to talk about using the day for racism. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I And I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, it's so great to hear about, um, you know, the, the demonstration that y'all had in Quebec City. 
Um, and I just want to uh, say that it's really important that you folks uh, organized in front of the police station. I mean, um, some of our listeners may not know, but the reason why today is the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination is um, because it's also a day that um, memorializes the Sharpeville Massacre, which occurred in South Africa in 1960, in which, uh, you know, black South Africans went to uh, protest and uh, uh, protest apartheid and in so doing went to a police station. Uh, And uh, at that demonstration, the police um, opened fire on peaceful protesters and uh, killed 69 people. And so I think it's, you know, I, I know that sometimes people have this idea of this day as, you know, one of those days that are divorced from politics. But, you know, it is it is um, deeply political um, to make the decision on this day to do an anti-racism protest uh, at the police station. So way to go, Quebec City, for getting it right. <laughs> Thanks. And if you missed your opportunity on March 21, you know, March 26th is a good day. To Still a good take day action to to, 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 to protest yeah. the police. March twenty seventh, <laughs> April two, April any you know every day is a good day. All the days. <laughs> I want to thank some folks before we get into this episode, uh, and so thanks again to everybody for your support and your kind words uh, and for sharing the podcast uh, and also letting us know um, what you think about the episodes. I've I've heard a lot of, of feedback on our two episodes on Bill C-7 and the disability filibuster. And so that tells me that, well, that, you know, in general, there wasn't much information being shared about this uh, broadly in, in within Canadian media, which I know, we know, um, but also that, um, that it's an important issue for folks. And so, you know, I think as Sandy and I look at what to talk about, uh, we will do our best to try and make sure that uh, we're talking about piece of legislation or changes to policy, public policies that, um, that you need to know about. So that's our commitment. I will say thank you, though, this week for uh, new donations uh, or changed in donations from Chad, Dara, Jeannie, Katie, and Kelly. Thank you so much and to everyone. We really appreciate it. And, and Sandy, I mean, live shows uh, might be possible at some point in 2021, maybe like November. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. I was just looking at these numbers in Ontario being like, sure, if you say yeah, so. Yeah, they're not good. <laughs> they're not good. They're not good. Ontario, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of uh, Facebook uh, activity of, fa- of family members, friends and family, um, not not doing stuff the way it should be in a pandemic. But anyway, we won't, I don't know if we need to talk about that specifically. No. Um but we will be talking about some other things. But first, we just wanted to, before we get into this discussion about um, the racists on this day of anti-racism, uh, we we wanted to have a brief discussion, a very brief discussion on a policy that's been announced by the NDP. Yeah. Now, is that, can you call that a policy? This seems more like a fucking, like, bunch of shit. I guess a lot of policies are bunches of shit. <laughs> yeah, I I don't see why that's um, mutually exclusive. Oh right, my God. right, right. 
Right. Okay. So this past weekend, uh, there was the National Youth Convention for the NDP. And while um, speaking to it in some session, uh, Jagmeet Singh announced the biggest, boldest post-secondary policy promise that is going to get Canada to free tuition fees. Oh. Say more. It's amazing. It's like everything that we've been fighting for, everything we've been fighting for, they finally were like, we're, we're going to do what the student movement has been calling for for decades. No, um, they, they promised a $20,000 forgiveness program for student loans, which on the surface sounds pretty good. That's like, yeah, that sounds great. Forgive student loans. It also sounds very much like the rhetoric we're hearing from the United oh, States. Yeah. And so, you know, I I imagine that they're like kind of just reaching to what's happening Absolutely. in the States. But there were some catches. There's a couple of catches put on to this um, promise. And the first catch is that the debt relief is tied to your lack of income or your income. And so... To be able to come up with a calculation on how much money you've made and therefore how much debt relief you get, they have to calculate your wages for five years before you get this program. Hmm. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what hmm. the fuck does that mean? Okay, fine. And um, the forgiveness ends at $20,000. So if you owe more than that on your federal loan, uh, it's not getting forgiven. And then the weirdest... Um, restriction is that your household income cannot be higher than $60,000. And so that's a household income of like, you know, could be one person, likely to be two people, um, could be two people with kids. <laughs> so kind of a shitty policy. Oh, wait, I thought I saw it. I saw it. I saw it capped at $100,000. Uh, I saw that the forgiveness, the total forgiveness is is 60000 So that there there's probably some sort of loan forgiveness that's not entirely wiping away your loan between 60 and 100. I mean, either way, the fact that it's this confusing um, <laughs> screams liberal scheme, doesn't it? <laughs> I can't wait to hashtag or to, to tag this episode with liberal scheme. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I was just so disappointed when I looked at the policy. Like, the one good thing is the elimination of interest on federal student loans, which is like, yeah, obviously federal student loans should not have interest. The federal government should not be raking in an income on people who are like literally the, the whole reason why they're taking out a loan is because they cannot afford uh, to uh, to the the uh, what they're being charged in tuition fees. So that is uh, good. And that's just where the good ends. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> it's just like I just I'm I'm so stunned by the the like lack of politic that goes into this program, because here's the thing that even if something like this is implemented, uh, it it will like you can see what happens next. Like there, here's a program that eliminates a portion of your debt, which essentially means it's a back end grant. It is a it's like a back end um, amount of money that is given to people not based on their need based on their income so it doesn't matter like who you are and what your circumstances are it's based on your income okay so you know what's what is the justification then to stop turning stop that from turning into an income contingent loan program where the amount that you repay each year is dependent on your income which has been suggested for years and I thought opposed for years <laughs> by 
the NDP because it's a mm. program that has been known and shown all over the world to justify even higher tuition fees because the justification goes, well, if it doesn't matter how much, if it, if it will never um, be too debilitating on people to pay it back, then who cares how much is being charged? You'll always be able to pay it back if it is contingent to your income, even though that means necessarily that poor people could end up paying for 20, 30, 40, 50 years with tons of interest attached, meaning that poor people are funding post-secondary education. And Mm -hmm. so the, the entire structure of that is just incredibly fucked up. And by, by making this schemy promise, you justify uh, the liberals making another like, I mean, the liberals will respond to this by either making a schemy promise that sounds even better than this, because there's so many ways that you can respond to this and make it sound better, even if it's uh, ultimately the same thing, ultimately, an incontingent, whatever program, or they'll actually do something that's better because what the fuck? This is just trash. And it does seem to be copied from the rhetoric that's going on in the United States that everyone's just letting y'all know people here on the who are part of the Democratic Party and youth and students are already pissed about because they went into that election thinking that they were going to have a real robust debt forgiveness program. But, you know, the Democrats have come back saying that they're going to forgive ten ten thousand dollars or something like that some sort of weird cap in a country where people's debt balloons uh, way past uh six figures on the regular like why are you using that as your inspiration ndp that's not a good idea (laughs) (laughs) you should you should be rooted in politics and the only politics that makes sense here is that tuition should be free and uh the ndp should have that uh as a flagship at a time for students and youth at a time, especially when the pandemic has like decimated access to, to so many things, including, you know, uh, jobs, a quality education, you know, people are going to be looking into being retrained. It's like just so obvious what the, the post-secondary education uh, platform should be. And I mm-hmm. just don't understand how, who how who came up with this and thought that this was good (laughs) Mm. what's really bizarre is to to see that in the messaging within some um interviews that singh has done he actually ties this to their promise of free tuition so um he's you know it says in the meantime while we figure out how to work with the provinces for free tuition this is our commitment and I think that, Sandy, what you mentioned, that this is that this actually becomes a justification for higher tuition fees is so critical because I had – I've been arguing with, with NDP MPs and activists all weekend who are like, oh, is nothing good enough? Like isn't this like at least a step in the right direction? And it's like, number one, large-scale social programs do not get implemented by tiny little fucking steps. Literally, you will not find a single social program that was implemented by one little schemey step over here and one little schemey fucking shitheaded step over there. That's not how it works. And when you agree to these kinds of half measures and schemey piece of bullshit ideas, like that, why do you need to make tuition fees lower if there's debt forgiveness? Like that's the self-defeating 
reality of how when you tinker with debt in a very limited way, the argument makes it – it actually becomes more difficult to argue and justify free education because people have access, quote unquote, because of this back-end grant. And, you know, what I thought of first was like where does the repayment assistant plan fit into this? Because RAP is um, – is, it helps the lowest income people pay off their student loan. And it exists because without RAP, people would just default on their student loans if they just couldn't pay them. And so if you make – uh, below a certain threshold. So if you make below something like $27,000 as an individual, below $36,000 as a, as a couple, and then up to like $59,000 if you have a family with a bunch of kids, then your student debt, you actually can pay nothing on it because the rep- repayment assistance will eliminate your payments. It stretches out your loan as well, but it's it, it still actually it ends up being like you're not paying your tuition fees back. If you don't know about RAP and you're low income, you should find out about it because it's not automatically applied. You literally have to call the NSLSC and, and ask for RAP to see if you qualify. And, and when, when we were working in the student movement, I heard all the time from people that didn't know that they were eligible for RAP that they actually could get it. So you should find out about it because it's a useful program. But it just it just tells me that the folks making the policies within, this, within the, the NDP have no experience with student debt. Like, there's just not enough people in the party, I I don't know, that are, like, indebted to the level that students are indebted right now. And the other thing that just drives me so up the wall in this is, like, a student debt is a a monthly payment to the federal government in the same way that taxes might be. Mm -hmm. And to eliminate that would be literally an accounting decision. You just say, you know what, wipe it. We're not going to take in this money. Uh, They already wipe off hundreds of millions of dollars of unpaid student loan every single year or unpaid student debt. Uh, They easily wiped off the fucking, you know, automakers' massive debts when they were bailing them out. They Mm -hmm. easily could eliminate student debt. They could do that. And not just do that, but if you eliminated student debt at the federal level and you eliminated the bureaucracy that it takes to track all of this schemey bullshit Mm -hmm. and you eliminate, like, all of the other kind of... Uh, uh, secondary or tertiary industries that are around student debt at the federal level, you say you start to save some money. So we're actually not even talking about something that costs very much money. And so, yeah, you can take the fucking direction of, of ultra fucking scheme or you could do what you should be doing and being like, yeah, we're wiping student debt tomorrow. And, you know, I really need NDP MPs to understand this. In this moment, people absolutely need more like this is the time, Sandy. You said it. This is the the moment where we where free tuition fees makes the most amount of sense as the pandemic has opened up massive change. We've seen massive social programs be, be invented overnight, and 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 people got help with CERB, and students aren't even in classes right now. This is the time to be calling for this these 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 measures, and and every single person that responds with bad, but the constitution, eh, but we don't have any control over this, bear bear bear. Oh, this is the best we can do. Fuck you. You're fucking destroying your party, and I mean. Like, what is even left of the NDP if you can't even get this right? I mean, you've fucked up so many other things in the past year that I'd love to talk about. But this especially, my God, guys, 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 free tuition. It's two fucking mm-hmm. words. Just 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 take those two words. That's your policy. That's all it mm-hmm. takes. That's that's it. Super simple. Ah! <laughs> based on principle. That's that. <laughs> that's all we want to say about that. <laughs> I mean, the other piece of uh, major news that we want to talk about this week is, of course, 
anti-Asian racism. What a horrific set of events that happened in Atlanta, Georgia, that has opened up a discussion, a public discussion, finally, because, you know, I don't think it was really happening previously, about in the last year, how there has been massive increases in hateful acts towards Asian people. And, you know, I think we have to be really honest about looking at the rhetoric of a number of politicians, including politicians in Canada, and how they have discussed the pandemic and how that has led to a situation where today uh, racists and white supremacists feel publicly supported in their ire and disgust, uh, in their disgustingness uh, towards uh, Asian people. That's right. The events of this past week um, were un- unfortunately inevitable. Like this is what happens when you are 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 living in a moment where um, any kind of person is scapegoated, is demonized, is blamed, is is used as the the, the to, to be created into the monster of why we're experiencing this horrible pandemic and the the rise in anti-asian racism the rise in xenophobia you know it's the like politicians have obviously pushed this the the, the biggest example of course being Donald Trump but i think that you know what Donald Trump did was he made it um, he made it a very like clear what anti-Asian sentiment and racism looks like as it's related to the pandemic. And what is perhaps less clear is how absolutely mundane that kind of ra- racism really is and how it isn't just, um, you know, jo- uh, Donald Trump saying like ex- obviously racist stuff. It's also like how the entire media establishment set up discussions for about this pandemic in the first place. It's it's so interesting. Um, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book about journalists and, and uh, politicians and how they spun the pandemic for Canadians to understand it in a whole bunch of different ways. And when I was going through um, the start of the pandemic and how it was being communicated, it was so um obvious, I guess, to me in retrospect, it was obvious to me at the time, but in retrospective is even more obvious how obsessed the, the, the media was in this country with China and how it was like all of these messages like China's mm-hmm. hiding this, China's hiding this. We don't know what's going on. We can't trust China, all this kind of thing. And it's like, fuck, I'm not def- like, I'm not a fucking fan of the Chinese government and, and all governments need to be criticized. But the, the, the obsession with China did something very important. It hid what the real source of COVID infections were for this country, which was the United States, right? It was it was related to where Canadians mm-hmm. travel the most. And I'm sure I'm sure this has come up on this podcast before, but you know, when when um a couple of, of months after the beginning of the pandemic, when journalists look back to see where did Canadian cases come from, 
It was not from China. Like the first case, one of the first cases that that did come from China was an international student. And she like very much respected quarantine and didn't leave her residence room. And she was a student at Western. And after that, like the vast majority of the cases came from the United States. After that, they came from uh, France, from Austria. You know, I've said this before from the United Kingdom. Fuck, like the prime minister's own wife got it in the United Kingdom. Like this is a global pandemic. And, you know, at the time, like mm-hmm. the fact that China sequenced the the SARS-CoV-2, the, 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 the actual virus and made that public, that is what kicked off the race for the vaccine. That's what gave the world the opportunity to look at all of the previous research that had been doing, let's say, on MNR, mRNA Research, which is, of course, what delivered to the first two vaccines that we have. And, there, and, and researchers were like, OK, now that we have the code, now that Chinese scientists have sequenced the code and they made this public, let's take the 10 years of research that we've been doing, the 20 years of research that have lead us, leaded, uh, led us to this moment where we have the mRNA technology to the place that it's at. We know now the genetic code. We can now replicate the genetic code. And then, of course, research is superpowered through through finances. Like, never, never was China spoken about in that way. It was always very, very um, nefarious. And, you know, sometimes journalists try to couch it. Oh, it's not, you know, of course, we're not talking about China, like Chinese people. This is, this is a, you know, question of, but, but it's, it was so in every single fucking thing. And I'm just like, the Canadian media absolutely needs to reckon there needs to be a reckoning with the the way that anti-Chinese, anti-Asian sentiment has been whipped up primarily by the press, you know, and of course, stick politicians in there, too. Yeah. And I, for anyone who's listening, who's like skeptical about that, uh, skeptical about what Nora is saying about the way that the media engaged uh, with China and whether or not we can could trust China um, and then the extension there to uh, the Chinese, like essentially, like you should just take a look at how the media covered New York and Ontario, because New York did hide cases in their reporting. They and they did it purposefully. The governor um, asked for cases to be hidden in their public numbers, which was later revealed. And did we have this sort of um this sort of fervor about trusting the United States and trusting what the United States was saying about their numbers and trusting New York in the same way that we did about China. Uh, Ontario was, uh, you know, putting out absolutely incorrect numbers altogether about vaccines because they counted wrong. And, you know, did we, <laughs> which is hilarious, um, but, you know, did, did was there... Uh, the same sort of fervor with like, can we trust Ontario? We need to interrogate Ontario. We need to un- interrogate Canada and so on. No, there wasn't. There wasn't. The xenophobia uh, in the way that uh, that our uh, news media felt comfortable talking about China in this way comes from a long history of, of um, anti-Asian sentiment playing itself out as not being able to trust Asian people and as Asian people being um, unclean. And I think we should, we should be very clear about understanding that history and how it's playing out today in this anti-Asian sentiment um, that people are 
you know, these white supremacists, these racists uh, are, are feeling supported in in their um, in the way that they are attacking people, uh, whether that be online, whether that just be through words, making people feel uncomfortable, uh, telling people to get out of public spaces or actually physically harming people. Yeah. And it's not like this is new. You know, I, I know that people have been quoting recent statistics like hate crime statistics from 2020. Of course, they're only going to come out in 2021. But at the start of the pandemic, the Korean consulate in Montreal issued a warning to Koreans living in Montreal to be uh, on the lookout for violent act- activities and violence attacks against them. Because a, a researcher who had just moved to Montreal from Korea was stabbed. And this was like in March 18th, 17th, like like right at the start of the pandemic, but after months of of um of this anti-Asian sentiment that had been all over the, the news. And this this individual, like he had moved to Canada to to take up this research post. He moved with the, his his wife and child and was like, fuck this country and left. You know, and that was that was that should have been like uh, I don't know, a big red fucking alarm saying, ah, oh, Canada, like you have a problem. We have a problem. We need to deal with this problem. And and that confluence between the 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 racism embedded in discussing of, of the origin of this origin of this uh, virus, plus the rise of the far right finding its um, organizing capacity within the anti-mask movement, like there is a direct connection between these things. And so often the the anti-mask movements, I mean, it took a long time for them to be uh, so openly racist that in the media that it was actually covered as such. And, you know, the day we're recording this, like yesterday, there were there were anti-mask, openly racist anti-mask uh, rallies in, in cities across the, the world, including Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, um, Calgary. Um, actually, I've just said Vancouver. I'm not sure if there's one in Vancouver, but I mean... Like there have been, <laughs> so, um, and you know the, the there has been mm-hmm, absolutely mm-hmm. no uh, public response to this. There's no public policies to try and confront this. As they say, the like journalists have not looked at themselves to say how are we perpetuating this and how can we make this right. And things just get worse and worse and worse. And so the mass shooting uh, that happened in the United States, uh, as I said, it was foreseeable like this is the, the the end result of what happens when highly racist rhetoric is 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 tolerated and um you know there's reports in, in from coming from calgary of of like young racists like doing a sig heil salute as people are driving by you know there's some activist that took a video of this and and asked two guys like do you know what the significance of that is and they were like yeah we fucking do right the, there is an inc- like the, the 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 rise of the far right under the guise of being anti-mask and the connection to anti-asian racism uh this is an explosive story and no one is telling it right and aside from activists who are like trying their best to you know ring the alarm bell and 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 take statistics and keep track of the uh, uh, incidences that they're hearing in their communities like aside from all of that which is really really important work like where's everyone else where where is 
where is the, the public policy interventions that will prevent violence from happening? Or is it just like, yeah, fuck, like, we got, you know, cops are just like, they're standing back, they're letting violence happen. Um, politicians are just like, oh, you know, maybe we should, maybe we should turn the, the, the volume down on how we talk about China. Oh, no, China's got the two Michaels, we need to fuck, it's fucking war against China, right? It's just like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Yeah, I, you know, I'm very worried about the these growing marches across Canada. You know, there there have been uh, these tiki torch type marches. I mean, the, the one that happened in, in Toronto this weekend had a, like a zombie theme where hilariously these, these freedom uh, protesters, as they're terming themselves, wore a bunch of like, they wore all white suits, like body suits. And masks that that had uh no like facial features on them so they were literally wearing masks to protest masks in a in a like meta level illogical event like i (laughs) just don't understand but you know this this stuff is really growing and um one of the things that i'm uh concerned about with that is the way that the media uh talks about these rallies as as using the euphemisms that the rally organizers use um, to allow for their spread to be um, more palatable. So, you know, like they'll they'll call it like a a rally for freedom um, and the news will report it as these rallies for freedom (laughs) rather than reporting them for what they are you know like um there was a there was one in edmonton that was called a walk for freedom throughout um throughout the media uh and you know it 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 was not discussed as what it was it was a white supremacy rally and we have to be able we have to stop you know as as journalists out there there we need to be able to 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 see through the way people are talking about these things and to report them for what they really are so that we can connect them to the incidents like what is happening what what has happened in, in Atlanta, Georgia and what is happening all over the world with respect to the rise of anti-Asian sentiment and in, in the same token we have to do that when we see Um, politicians, whether it be Jason Kenney or uh, who has been uh, very explicit in his anti-Asian-ness or even um, a quieter, more um, subtle uh, approach to to blaming certain communities uh, for uh, for, uh, the transmission in the pandemic, like has happened in the Peel region uh, with respect to South Asian folks. Like, uh, let's be Let's look through the bullshit. Let's cut through the bullshit and report the news, not only in the face of how people are presenting themselves, but also all of the subtext that underlies that. I mean, isn't that a basic function of the news to to wade through the bullshit and to translate <laughs> for the public what is actually happening? Isn't it? I mean, I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so last week, um, the two Michaels, uh, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor, and uh, they've been detained in China for two years. And it's, it's, it's seen by most people as political retaliation against Canada's decision to arrest Meng Wanzhou as she was transiting from Vancouver. And it, 
in, in the interviews that I listened to, like not one journalist entertained the question, what, what is it possible that these guys were kind of spying? <laughs> You know, like, is it possible that China didn't arrest two completely random Canadians and, in fact, arrested two people who, whatever their work was, would send a message to the Canadian government to say, like, you have got to uh, uh, release um, our political prisoner and we'll release your political prisoners, right? Like, it's 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 high-level fucking geopolitics, and Canada walked right into it by upholding bullshit sanctions on Iran. Like, let's remember how this whole thing started. And we've got an entire media establishment that can't entertain this, this question of, okay, but, like, is there anything to the charges of espionage? And even if there's something to the charges of espionage, doesn't mean that they should be held without charge, doesn't mean that they should not have a fair trial. But, like, the Canadian media can't even ask that question. And instead, it's like this full, like, war mentality where they've got our men and we got to go in there and we got to get our men out of there, right? And it's and, and that feeds in, that absolutely feeds anti-Asian sentiment. So does the stunt motion that the conservatives serve to call the 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 detention the attacks on the Uyghur community in China a genocide right it was that's like it's not a coincidence that that motion happened now and it's also not a coincidence that it's coming from a conservative party that has used increasingly racist rhetoric that's targeted towards China to try and shore up its base and so this is also where Sandy when you say you know we have to think a little bit harder yeah this is where the NDP shouldn't just be like yeah we fully support the fucking conservatives motion and we're going to give them political capital because because we can see through what they're doing because this actually has nothing to do with China. It has nothing to do with genocide, has nothing to do with protecting the Uyghur population in China. It has everything to do about whipping up anti-Chinese and, and then by corollary anti-Asian sentiment in this country so that Aaron O'Toole can get elected. Like that is what's happened. And not even the NDP is able to see through this. And instead they play along and they're like, yeah, like even the liberals fucking abstained. They saw, right? And no one in the mainstream press is explaining this. No one is able to, to, to rip apart how all of these like apparently disparate kinds of things all feed together into this, this, this narrative that then absolutely uh, preys on people who are a year into the pandemic. They're, they're obviously open to the idea that maybe masks are not saving anybody's lives. And then boom, we've got this nascent, growing, really scary, ultra-violent white supremacy movement. It's like, it's so textbook. It's so textbook. And it's like, how is every institution in this country failing in the face of this threat, let's say? And like literally the only people that are are there to to try and push back against this are are anti-fascist activists, anti-racist activists, like literally people in the street. Like it can't just be that. Like where's the Alberta NDP? Oh, right. They're deleting tweets that say that they're anti-fascist. What? I actually don't know what you're referring to with that. I mentioned this on the show, I think, or maybe maybe we talked about it after, um, but – yeah, when the last time there was a Tiki Torch rally in uh, Alberta, the Alberta NDP, someone, you know, posted uh, from the official account, like, if you're you're either pro or you're anti-fascism. And it's like, okay, wow, great message. Oh, they deleted it. Oh, yeah, I think it, that's coming back to me now. Um Jeez. One of the one of the things I was, uh, you know, expecting to see in the news 
um, but but didn't, uh, is some sort of discussion about how you know we've we've been here before in terms of scapegoating an identifiable community for a pandemic, you know, and, Mm. um, you know, that has happened before with respect to HIV AIDS and the gay community and the Haitian community specifically being targeted um, uh, as, as the people who were responsible, as the people who were um, getting it and as being, deserving of it um and what that did for uh people who were homophobic who were anti-black and specifically um uh had um thoughts against the haitian community what that did to to pause to stop um a whole world from focusing on uh, social and medical solutions for that pandemic. Uh, you know, the whole, a whole generation of people were lost. A whole generation of people were lost. It's um, like the loss is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. And so here we are uh, today, again, scapegoating another community for a pandemic like look a virus is a fucking virus and uh, the only people who are to blame for uh you know this this the way that it has uh ballooned and gotten out of our control is the folks who control our public policies and the folks who control how we would have been able to reorganize our society um, to to stave off the amount of trans- uh, transmission and death that has occurred. Not Asian people, not one specific country. It's like everyone, all of the different um, countries together, and municipal, um, uh, the municipal responsible uh, people who are responsible, the folks at the provincial or state level, or um, whatever it's called, and wherever you're at. Those are the people who we should be turning our ire to. Um, And all we know what happens when we scapegoat people and we create a stigma around identity and disease. And it's not good. People fucking die. Uh, Xenophobia, discrimination, homophobia, however it plays out, it all it all equals um, more whipping up of this type of marginalizing of particular identities. And, you know, I would have loved to see something written about that. Uh, I haven't, but also (sighs) journalism is falling apart. So I don't know, maybe that has something to do with it. (laughs) I just, it's all, it's all very frustrating to see this, um, this sort of thing happening again, as we have like the shortest fucking memories ever. But it's even more unacceptable because, like, there's this there's this motif of video that is now normal, which is journalists filming themselves trying to report on these rallies and then being violently harassed. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what the fuck else do you need to tell you to stop covering these rallies like that? <laughs> like, 
maybe you shouldn't cover this rally like it's the Santa Claus parade. Maybe you need to fucking not send a camera crew. Maybe you need to not actually report on the turnout or on the lies or on what they say about themselves. And you actually need to start looking at, like I said this last week, you need to start looking at who is the leadership? Mm-hmm. Where's their leadership living? Mm-hmm. What kind of of, of community spread are these individuals causing because they refuse to protect public health orders? Why are we not doing that kind of journalism? Don't go to their fucking events. Of course you're going to get harassed. Mm-hmm. Don't fucking be surprised when the police don't protect you. I'm seeing this. There's, um, you know, calls in Kelowna because there was a, a rally in Kelowna and a journalist was harassed and people were like, well, where are the police? And they're like, oh, the police are present. Of course the fucking police are present. Not only are there fucking cops in the crowd because they support this shit, but they don't, they're not going to protect the press. They're not going to protect anybody. They literally are aligned with the message of these fucking rallies. And so journalists, get it out of your head that you can cover this rally the way that you cover any other public event, because that is what has led us to this situation. And that is going to be what lets this situation get even worse, because every single time you feature what sounds like an outrageous, fucked up comment from someone, someone else is like... Oh, that, wow, that actually makes sense. That's the, that's the explanation that I've been looking for. You, you just you can't assume that something that like walking around like a zombie wearing a mask at an anti-mask rally is going to just make everyone realize that you're like completely like co- completely clueless. That's not how it works. Yeah, these stories are the types of stories that deserve deep traditional journalism. You know, it 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 deserves investigation. This is not we can't just be satisfied with Twitter era journalism where it's like, okay, got to the rally, got some footage, wrote something, got got comment from from someone who supports the rally, got comment from someone who hates the rally. Excellent. Let's move on. That is like literally <laughs> not enough, but that's all we've been getting. It's like it's so dangerous to leave it there. We need people who are being tricked into joining these movements because they think that it has something to do with their freedom or whatever. And then, um, being, um, uh, you know, uh, indoctrinated into this white supremacist, uh, the, the, the new rise of the white supremacist, right. We need people to, to understand, um, what they're getting into right from the beginning before they have an opportunity, um, to, to try to recruit at these places. And so I don't know, you know, I take a look at, at what's happening um, in the media landscape in Canada with, you know, the, the news of uh, Huffington Post Canada having just unionized and then, um, uh, you know, being destroyed <laughs> by um, after the BuzzFeed takeover. And I'm just I'm not super optimistic about what's happening in journalism in Canada, but um, that's a significant part of the story. And. Of, of what's happening here with respect to anti-Asian racism. It's a bit significant part of the story of why um, the stories about uh, anti-Black racism are written in the way that they are um, and why we can't get it right with respect to white supremacy. All of that is related. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is uh, because the, the, the traditional media landscape is uh it doesn't seem to be going the right way on this they're going the wrong way and actually i just want to make one mention um one of the best articles that i have read recently on the rise in anti-asian racism in canada was written by amy chung who was a huffington post reporter 
for the Huffington Post. So these these things are all connected. 